BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman, and I'm here with Professor Shauna Shapiro, who you may remember recorded an episode with me about mindful discipline. Well, today she's back and here to talk to us about some of the practices we can start right now from her new magnificent book, Good Morning, I Love You, Mindfulness and Self-Compassion, Practices to Rewire Your Brain for Calm, Clarity, and Joy. And the reason this is such an important episode for parents is that we work so hard to raise kids who can self-regulate, who have a sense of presence in the world, who can respond instead of react, who can experience joy. And we often do so while berating ourselves for not being good enough parents. Mm-hmm. And, and the funny thing is that the first and most effective tool to support our kids in that noble endeavor is to take the time to nurture this in ourselves. And for me, having had the privilege to learn mindfulness practices with Shauna, I'm going to just give us all a quick gift, which is to ask Shauna to begin this discussion with a mindfulness practice, if I may. Absolutely. So let's begin by just softening the body 5% more. I find it's always helpful to begin practicing mindfulness by letting the body be at ease while the mind starts to be clearer. So we can be physiologically at rest and have this laser-like clarity of attention. So softening the body, softening the jaw, and then just bring your attention to your breath and just see if you can feel the breath as it flows in and out of the body. Not trying to do it perfectly, but just experiencing the breath. It's pretty extraordinary that each time we inhale, we're oxygenating the body. And each time we exhale, we are releasing stress and toxins. And there's this elegant cycle that we can turn to in any moment. This breath, this nurturing, this body. And so taking one more breath in and out. And maybe just setting an intention for this podcast for listening of openness and curiosity. It's the best way to learn. As you let your eyes open, maybe stretching your arms above your head. I don't have any scientific data on this, but it always feels good. (laughs) Good. So delighted Ah, to be here. I'm delighted to have you. Good morning. I love you. (laughs) Good morning. I love you. So first of all, I think Oh, that was so nice. So you have this succinct, clear, and concrete definition of mindfulness. 
using three pillars. Can we start with that for any listener who still thinks of mindfulness as just sort of this abstract idea? Absolutely. I think it's so important to understand what it is because it completely informs how we practice it and how we live it. So the first thing to know is that mindfulness is not just a meditation practice, that mindfulness is so much more. It's really a way of being, a way of living our lives. And that's why it's so applicable for parenting. We can bring our mindfulness into our parenting. And so the way we begin first is through intention. And that's the first pillar of mindfulness. And our intention is simply knowing what is important to me? What do I value? In what direction do I want to set the compass of my heart? So do I want to be more present with my children? Or do I want to be kinder with myself? Or do I want to experience more joy in my life? So first, we just have to get clear on what we actually care about. The second element is attention. And if you think about it, our attention is the most valuable resource we have. A lot of people say our time is the most valuable resource we have. They're wrong. It's our attention. And we actually aren't that good at paying attention. Research from Harvard shows that our mind wanders on average 47% of the time. (laughs) Right. That's about half (laughs) of your life that you're missing. And in fact, if you're listening to this podcast and you've already noticed your mind has wandered... (laughs) Don't judge yourself. It's natural. Just gently bring yourself back. So part of mindfulness is learning how to train and stabilize our attention in the present moment so we can see clearly. In fact, the word mindfulness means to see clearly. That's all we're trying to do. We're trying to see clearly so we can respond effectively. And the third element of mindfulness, we have our intention, our attention, and then the third element is our attitude. Mm. And I find this one the most challenging. (laughs) This is about paying attention with compassion, with kindness, with curiosity to ourselves, to our own experiences. So that when I make a mistake, let's say I yell at my son or I do something I'm not proud of, that instead of shaming and beating myself up, mindfulness allows us to go in, see it clearly, and then bring kindness and curiosity So I might say, oh, ouch, sweetheart, you really didn't want to treat him that way. And then instead of saying, you're such a bad mom, which is our default, Mm -hmm. to say, wow, you must be really stressed right now, or you must be scared right now, or whatever the situation is, and bring compassion. And so mindfulness is about these three core elements, the intention, attention, and attitude. And in fact, the Japanese kanji for the word mindfulness is comprised of these two characters, and one means presence or attention. And the other character, shin, means mind or heart. They're interchangeable. Mm, I love so that. mindfulness could have been translated as heartfulness. And it has such a different feel. Can you go through the three elements of self-compassion that you talk about? Because I think that that's probably, I mean, the way you even, the, the tool you gave just now, when you referred to yourself as, the, you know, mom, oh, sweetheart. You weren't talking to your son, right? You were saying to yourself, oh, sweetheart. To <laughs> so let's, so, let's talk about that a little bit. I love absolutely. it. And um, everyone listening is probably rolling their eyes. They're like, wait, we have to listen to three more elements. And I'm, <laughs> I apologize. I'm a professor. So no, you know what? It's, I, it's, I lecture on things. But, but I love how you do that because honestly, it's so confusing 
mindfulness is such a big area and it feels very overwhelming. And the way you break it down in the book is so manageable. And I think it is because you're a professor and you're breaking it down in a way where we can pull parts of it and help make it a concept that doesn't feel so unattainable. Exactly. And that's really my, you know, prayer for this world is to bring these teachings into our lives in a way that's very simple and accessible. And for people to realize it's not about getting it perfectly. It's like, can I move 5% more on my mindful awareness? Or can I be 5% more self-compassionate or compassionate with others? And so self-compassion, I find this practice to be incredibly powerful in my own life. And it's born out of mindfulness. So if you're listening, you already learned the first step, which is mindfulness. It's just this clear seeing awareness, this clear seeing kind awareness. And so the first step of self-compassion is just to notice that you're suffering, that you're in pain. So often we step right over our pain and then we try to fix it or we try to medicate it or we ignore it. So the first step is just to say, and I use the word sweetheart and you can say whatever feels good for you, (laughs) but but always say, oh, sweetheart, you're, you're struggling right now. You're in pain. And then the second step is to actually bring kindness toward ourselves, to treat ourselves as if we were a dear friend. And that is a radical step to actually be on your own team. Yeah. And so what I have my patients and my students do is when they're struggling with something, I have them imagine someone that they love so much that they're so close to that they care so much about. And I say, imagine this person said to you, I'm really struggling because I feel like I'm failing as a mother, or I feel like, you know, I, I can't go back into the workplace because I have nothing to offer or whatever the struggle is. What would you say to your dear friend? And then all of a sudden it's so easy to be kind. You know, I would never treat myself like that, but it's so easy to conjure those feelings up for your friends to protect them from their own you know, inner critic. And yes. and so it was just an interesting moment for me because I thought, ah, that's my first instinct. And it's right. so much easier with a friend even than anyone else because you're less invested. You're not raising your friends. You're not, you're not in a relationship with your romantic relationship with your friends. So it's the first pass at being able to say, okay, I am so completely a witness here and not judging you. Right. I'm here for you. I'm on your team. That's what we say to our friends. And so- yeah. This part of self-compassion is learning how to turn that care toward ourselves and be our own inner ally instead of our inner enemy. And so what I actually took is for me to imagine what I would say to a dear friend. We actually have to experientially feel that shift of consciousness and then you can feel the kindness and then you can turn it back to yourself. Right. So the key is to really think about a dear person coming to you and telling you the exact same story and what you would say to them. And then the final step of self-compassion, which I think is incredibly healing, is what's called common humanity. And that's the step where when we're ready, we begin to reflect on all the other people who are experiencing this similar pain. So when I was going through my divorce, to reflect on all the other women who were experiencing the, the fear and the loss that I was, And then to send out compassion to all of us, 
to recognize that I wasn't alone because we often isolate. We feel so alone in our pain that we're the only ones. And that's just simply not true. And so these are the three elements of self-compassion, this mindful awareness, just I'm in pain. The second step is how would I treat a dear friend? And the third step is to recognize I'm not alone in this. I don't know about you, but it feels very overwhelming to have to sift through papers and paperwork and be on hold and talk to a million people to try to sort out what kind of insurance to get and what the best deal is and what's best for your family. And so here's an idea. Policy Genius makes that easier. Policy Genius makes finding the right life insurance a breeze. In minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find your best price. And you can save $1,500 or more per year using Policy Genius to compare your life insurance policies. And once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape. Did you hear that? <laughs> once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape. That is awesome. And Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy. They can also help you find the right home and auto insurance or disability insurance. Here's the thing. Insurance is a terrible topic and it's really disturbing to talk about because it feels like you're saying something bad's going to happen. But since we can't control anything and we are responsible parents, we need to have insurance. And Policy Genius helps you find the right one. So if your science fiction dreams for 2020 still haven't become science fact, don't get discouraged, get insurance. It takes just a few minutes to find your best price and apply at policygenius.com. Policy Genius, we'll always get the future wrong. Better to get life insurance right. From the offices of Create and Cultivate, I'm Jacqueline Johnson, and this is Work Party, a podcast for working women that support each other's successes. In each episode, we bring in leading female powerhouses for career real talk and BS-free advice. Ready to create and cultivate the career of your dreams? Well, welcome to Work Party, the podcast. Could you give an example of how you've worked with someone through these three elements of self-compassion? Absolutely. So I use this practice a lot and there was, I worked at the cancer center for a long time and I worked with um, mostly women with breast cancer and it's such an incredible group of women to work with. It's, it's really extraordinary. Their courage and their, their grace through such a hardship. And I remember one woman she was understandably terrified of the diagnosis and the, and the future treatment. And we worked a lot just being mindful of her fear and her anxiety. And then the second step of learning how to bring kindness and compassion to herself, which was such a foreign experience. And then the third step was to reflect on all the other women who are facing breast cancer and all the other women who are facing the surgery and the chemotherapy. And all of a sudden, I remember this kind of smile, you know, coming onto her face and it was like, I'm not alone. And as she began to wish compassion and strength to all these other women, you could feel the sense of empowerment growing in her. Like she, she wasn't alone and she could help. And she became so involved in the, you know, in the pink ribbon movement and all these different things. And there was this beautiful way where as she was learning how to 
bring this compassion to herself, she was also giving it out into the world. By the way, I don't know if a lot of people feel that way, but a lot of times when people hear about, you know, self-compassion and not being so hard on yourself, that it gets confused with shirking responsibility. Yes. I'm so glad you're bringing this up. What I hear most often is one, self-compassion is selfish. And two, that I'm going to lose my edge and lose my motivation to change. If, like I'm just going to become a couch potato if I'm, if I'm kind right. to myself. Right. And so what the science shows is that that's exactly false. <laughs> that first of all, when you look at people who are more self-compassionate, and these are based on you know empirical data, not just conversations, that people who are rated as more self-compassionate on a standardized, reliable, valid scale... And then you ask their husbands, wives, partners, you know, parents, friends, um, how generous, how giving are these people? They're rated much higher. So people who are kind to themselves are also kind to others. And it makes sense because what you practice grows stronger. We know this with neuroplasticity. Our repeated behaviors, thoughts, emotions shape our brain. So you're with yourself 24 hours a day. And if you're practicing judging, shaming, criticizing yourself, that's going to leak out in other places. If we start practicing this way of being with ourselves that is kind, then it naturally overflows into our relationships. So that's that's the first response for, is it selfish? Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. The second thing is people often are afraid they're going to lose their edge or their motivation. And what we find in the research is it's the exact opposite, that people who are more self-compassionate, they engage in healthier behaviors, they exercise more, they do better when they try to um, eat a healthy diet, they lose weight faster and stick to the diet better than people who are not self-compassionate, they go to their doctor's appointments, they practice safe behaviors, because when you care about yourself, you take care of yourself. When you're thinking about a lot of people want to know how to raise compassionate children and self-compassionate children, your focus on raising yourself as a self-compassionate person is is critical. And I mean, I can think of nothing more hopeful to me than to imagine that if I take care of myself in a way that shows that I'm loving myself and caring about my safety and health and well-being and that that makes, you know, things better for everybody that I love and that my children will be doing the same thing. That that is, that's my... Especially our children. The way they learn is through modeling, Yeah. right? They don't learn through us, through our words, through what we say to them. They learn through how we live our lives. And if I think of one thing that I wish most for, I now have four adolescents. <laughs> um, if I could think of one thing I wish for all of them more than anything is that they love themselves, that they trust their good hearts and that they care for themselves with kindness as they move through this life. I hear here to that. And I, I still am, I mean, I still get, my kids joke around about this, but they're still doing good morning. I love you. And they, you know, anytime they're berating themselves about something, they'll pause and specifically talk about something that they love about themselves. You know, if, if there's something about your body that you're criticizing, wait a second, let's find a couple of things we really love and want to thank 
that's beautiful. That was beautiful. And I think what's key is, you know, let's say there is something that we do need to change. So let's say it's Mm -hmm. not, you know, judging our body, but let's say we're noticing they're they're, they're upset because they didn't study enough for a test. Yeah, that's a great example. So what's important is what self-compassion does is it doesn't say, oh, sweetheart, don't worry about it. You don't need to study. You're such a good person. Right. That's not it. What it says is, oh, I see you're really hurting right now because you didn't do well on your test. So you bring that mindfulness, you bring the kindness and the care. And then what self-compassion does is it gives you the resources to see things clearly and then make the next choice. That people who are self-compassionate, they they view failure very differently. Failure isn't a failure. It's an opportunity to learn and to grow. So you do badly on your test. In fact, my, my son and I are going through this right now as we speak. And what I was so proud of him because when he didn't do well on his English test, instead of shaming himself and being like, I just can't do this and I'm you know, not smart enough, he really was like, okay, I'm going to meet with the teacher, see what I can learn and, and dive into studying more. And I was, what I was so impressed with was this, um, this faith in himself Mm. that he didn't spiral into, I'm, you know, I'm not good enough, which is truthfully where I would have gone (laughs) back in high school, but he really looked at it as an opportunity. And that's what self-compassion does is it actually empowers us to look at the situation clearly and then take the most effective response. When we spiral into shame, it actually inhibits our learning. It shuttles our resources away from the learning pathways and into survival pathways, right? We're, we're attacking ourselves. We're shaming ourselves. And so the best way to learn and to grow and to make changes is kind of paradoxically through self-compassion. Love, because again, it's, it's another thing just to imagine a world where your kids can experience failure as an opportunity to grow and learn and look how it comes out. He's making it, your son is like, okay, now I can see clearly so I can move forward and figure out how to not feel this bad again. So, you know, we think about neuroplasticity with babies very easily. I think people are pretty sold on that, that the brain grows and changes one million new neural connections every second. We think about neuroplasticity with adolescents because there's a huge movement in studying the adolescent brain and how much more change is going on than we realized. We don't typically think that an old dog can learn new tricks. Can you <laughs> get into the old dogs, of the, those of us who are listening that are older dogs, um, and, <laughs> and what the power of mindfulness can do to change the structure of your brain? Absolutely. For me, this is the most hopeful message that's come out of science in the last 400 years really is (laughs) neuroplasticity. It's this discovery that our brain continues to change throughout our lifetime, that it's never too late to change, to transform, to re-architect our brain. And what is extraordinary about mindfulness and how it ties into neuroplasticity is how you change your brain is not always clear. And so happiness is a really wonderful, tangible example of this. So oftentimes we want to be happier. And so we go about doing things or consuming things or buying things that we think will make us happy. 
even like taking a vacation or doing specific things. And what the research shows is very, very interesting on this. First of all, we're very poor predictors of what will make us happy. Uh, This was research done by the Nobel Prize winner economist Daniel Kahneman. And what he says is we're very poor affective forecasters. It means we're very poor predictors of our own happiness. Then the other research that I think really applies to this is we know that there's a happiness set point, like a baseline level of happiness. And what we found is that your happiness set point doesn't really change throughout your life. And this was based on decades of research that's been replicated over and over again that shows people who win the lottery have this initial blip of happiness, but one year later, they go back to their baseline happiness set point. Even more surprising, people who are in a tragic accident and become paralyzed, they have this huge drop in happiness, as we'd expect, but one year later, they're also back to their baseline Mm. level of happiness. It's shocking research. Mm-hmm. And, you know, basically this is great news if you're born happy. <laughs> it's like life knocks you down and you pop back up. <laughs> but it's not such good news if you weren't born happy because mm-hmm. then no matter how big your successes are, or your wins, you always return to that baseline. What is so hopeful about neuroplasticity is it says, all right, even though external changes don't change your happiness set point, buying the new Tesla, going on a vacation, whatever Mm -hmm. it is, internal changes can. Happiness can be trained because the very structure of your brain can be modified, says neuroscientist Richie Davidson. So we can actually re-architect our brain to shift our happiness level through mindfulness and compassion practices. And when you look at the brains of long-term meditators, the areas of the brain that have to do with emotion regulation, with learning, with um, emotional intelligence, with compassion, with happiness grow bigger and stronger. So what are some concrete ways to exercise those muscles? Is that too broad of a question? No, it's a great question. So a couple ways. In fact, in my book, it's chock full of specific science-based practices that help us grow resources to increase our happiness, to cope with difficulty, and to really, I think, deepen and enrich our lives. And so a couple practices, my favorite practice that I've been doing every day for the last few years is called the magical morning question. Mm. And there's something that is called the negativity bias in psychology. And what we've discovered is that evolutionarily, um, it made sense to focus on the negative, to focus on the danger, to constantly scan our environment for threat. That's how we survived. And yet currently it's causing a lot of problems. And so one of the things we need to learn how to do is balance this negativity bias by beginning to focus on the good and the beautiful. And so when I wake up in the morning, in an attempt to prime my brain, to scan my environment for the surprising, wonderful things instead of for all the terrible things that are gonna happen, I simply ask myself, I wonder what surprising and magical thing's gonna happen. Mm. And then I go through my day truly looking for the little things that I wouldn't have noticed. 
And what it's done is it starts to build that pathway of appreciating the good and actually receiving it. We step right over the good so often. And it doesn't make you disappointed that the magical thing isn't happening in the day. It it (laughs) opens your eyes to noticing the magical things. Right. It's not about setting these super high expectations that are going to lead to disappointment. It's about the smallest things. It's about, you know, noticing the dew on a blade of grass and really like remarking at how beautiful it is. Whereas I would have just stepped right over it Mm -hmm. or actually pausing when I hear my son laughing in the other room and to actually kind of drink in that joy. What, What typically happens is when something negative happens, we ruminate on it and we focus on it. You know, if you get a review from work and you have five amazing things and one negative thing, what do you think about? Right. The negative thing. And so part of what this practice is, is about starting to shift our attention to incline our mind to look for the beautiful. And it doesn't have to be something spectacular. It's just those little in-between moments that kind of usually slip away. Noemi believes that luxury jewelry doesn't have to be overpriced. They cut out the middleman to deliver exceptional fine jewelry without traditional retail markup. Noemi designs and manufactures everything in-house and sells directly to consumers with a lifetime warranty and free shipping both ways. So you get to save an average of 50% compared to other luxury brands. And here's what's awesome. It's the only fine jewelry company that offers that incredible quality at this price. There's 18 karat gold and it is repurposed. They also have ethically sourced diamonds of uncompromising quality that come with IGI certification cards. And you can personalize with engravings, order custom designs, and even those are returnable. Usually you have to kind of know a guy to get this kind of deal. At Noemi, everyone gets the friends and family treatment. And you can read the thousands of five-star reviews on the website to see for yourself. Whether buying for yourself or as a gift, Noemi is a safe place to shop for luxury jewelry online. Return any order for a full refund. Again, even engravings and custom designs are returnable for a full refund. There is absolutely no risk in this experience. And the authenticity is guaranteed with IGI certificates detailing color, clarity, and appraisal value. If you're looking for quality fine jewelry made to last a lifetime from a luxury brand you can trust, it's Noemi. They have thousands of five-star reviews online. We suggest you read some and see why people are raving about this company. Go to hellonoemi.com slash humans to see their collections and get $50 off your first purchase with promo code HUMANS. H-E-L-L-O-N-O-E-M-I-E dot com slash humans. And don't forget to use promo code humans for $50 off your first purchase. Now, one side note is that I have had inside scoop on a lot of these practices from Shauna. So I can highly recommend this magical thing and appreciating these small moments because this is going to sound ridiculous. My dog 
the way it sounds in the morning when she chews her food, we all are silent listening to it because it's so cute and strange. (laughs) And it's become this joke in the house where nobody's allowed to talk if when she's crunching her food because we're so, it just like puts us into this Zen-like state. It's so bizarre. Um, (laughs) But we find these, we, we, it started from saying, okay, let's find these magical moments. And it's possible that my children, like it, it started off where they were making a little bit of fun of me, but it's turned into, they and I are so into finding those silly, happy cool moments of just what what goes on in the world by just paying attention to them. Well, and I love what you said, because you said it started off kind of a little bit as a joke. And <laughs> what I will say, and I, and I just want to share this with everyone that's listening, is many of these practices for me kind of felt a little hokey or felt a little woo-woo or just, you know, I'm a scientist and I've really dedicated my life to science. And So it's been interesting trying to keep an open mind and to really just experiment with these practices and say, does this lead to greater happiness and health or does this lead to nothing? And, And so as you experiment in your own life, you really start to see this actually nourishes me. This actually is building pathways that I want to grow. And you can give it a try because like you said, this book is chock full of nuggets like this, where you don't have to think of this as this massive commitment, but there are, you know, you can grow with these nuggets and as you're doing them and watching how your body and your mind responds, you can decide whether or not it feels better. If this is actually doing the thing that you're hoping for. Or if in my experience, I just did those things without looking for anything because I was just curious. And Mm -hmm. then I have found that I'm even smiling thinking about those small practices because they've just changed the way the tone of my house is. Exactly. And I think that's really the key is to have this open, curious mind that that really is the best environment for learning. And, and that's really what I hope to model to our children. That's what I hope to model to my students, to the people I work with, is can I bring this open, non-judgmental, curious mind to every single moment and really experience life in its full richness instead of seeing it through the lens of all my beliefs and biases and assumptions and conditioning. And I believe that's really what our world needs is to step back from all of our ideas and all of our kind of rigid beliefs and to really deeply feel into the present moment. What is true? What is true now? Maybe that was true last month, but what is true here? Now, when you're saying all of these things, there you have an optimistic point of view and i don't mean it in a hokey way glass half full i mean it in a scientific way in the view of the world where there is a potential for change and a growth mindset and what i'm wondering is because you know this is now the third thing to come up in this conversation where this is both for our brains and for ourselves and also all of our hopes for our kids are to, you know, we know that raising a child with a growth mindset is the path to a different kind of life experience than if you have a pessimistic view. So what I'm wondering is, because I just love how you're talking about this, when you hear the language coming from your kids, and I know this is a little bit 
to the side. When you hear the language coming from your kids that is the sort of the opposite of what your son was saying when he figured out what he could do next so that the test didn't go badly again. Mm-hmm. When you hear language that feels pessimistic, that feels like a closed mindset, mm-hmm. what is a way to not alienate your child, but also help them with the language that you're using as we're being self-compassionate, as we're talking about how to reframe failures, even with little things like the difference between, you know, people always are mean to me or teachers never like me versus the more today. I think that's why I thought of it is because you were saying maybe it was different a month ago, but today a teacher didn't like your behavior, which Mm -hmm. doesn't translate to every day. How do you tweak that language so that it gets in the water of your household? Right. It's, it's a great question. And it's interesting because, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist and I train therapists. And so we are often working with that delicate balance of really empathizing and joining with our clients and also kind of facilitating and educating and moving towards healing and Mm -hmm. growth. And I think it's very similar to how we treat our children. So the first step is always to let them know you hear how they're feeling, to validate, right? right? I hear that this is really painful, that you're so, that, that this feels, you know, to really recognize the emotion that they're feeling and just to speak it out loud and to have them speak it out loud. They did research at UCLA and they showed that by just naming an emotion, it downregulates your physiology. Mm. It helps calm you down just to say, I'm scared or I feel sad. So that's the first step. And then second, just like you said, you can start to model. You can reflect back. You know, I hear how hard it was for you that today your teacher was angry at you instead of your all your teachers hate you to really start to wind it back to just the basic facts is incredibly helpful. And then I also think teaching children some of these practices, but not in that moment, because when you're in pain, when you're in fear, when you're overwhelmed, as I said before, the brain is not at kind of full throttle and ready to learn. Not a curious brain at that point. Not a calm, curious brain. We want a calm, curious Mm -hmm. brain because it's that combination of interest, but also a general sense of well-being that Mm -hmm. really leads to to growth and learning. So this is part of modeling, part of reflecting back, but using this language of today. And then later at other times, not in the heat of the moment, is when you talk about reframing or going through that experience and thinking about new language. So your new book just came out, which is number one on Amazon in mindfulness, which is no surprise. And um, I want to know, tell us what's different about this book and what you hope to get out of it. Well, the reason I wrote this book was really as a way to give people the science that would help kind of motivate them And then the practices they could do to really rewire their brain and change their life. Mm. And I think what I most want people to get out of the book, and, and really I think the central message of the book, is that it's never too late to change. No matter what your past, no matter what mistakes you've made, no matter what your current situation, it's never too late to rewire the brain to 
grow these resources, to develop these practices that can lead to greater joy, greater connection, greater meaning in our lives. You know, so often when I'm working with people, those, you know, and especially, especially parents, it's like, oh, well, it's too late. This is how, this is how it is. I've mm-hmm. heard people say that so many times yeah. about, about, um, electronics. And oh my God, totally. Yeah. You know, they're like, well, we've already blown it. Our kids are already addicted. There's nothing that can be done. And what I tell people is, first of all, you never go, you know, from all to none. This is not a game of perfection. It's about moving in the direction you want to head, right? Setting the compass of your heart is a direction. It's not a destination. And so what this book talks a lot about is this idea of making small changes that lead to huge outcomes. And so I'll invite people to say, okay, you know, we're having difficulty with electronics and social media and devices. So why don't we start with all meals are protected? You know, you don't have to take your kids off it forever and take away their phones, but all meals are protected. And you can even use the research that tells them when there's electronics at mealtime, it decreases the intimacy and joy of everyone at the dinner. Mm -hmm. Even (laughs) if they're in view not being used. Exactly. Yeah. And so even if they're not being used, even if they're turned off, right. it still is triggering the brain to say, oh my God, mommy's going to get taken away from me in any moment because there's her phone mm-hmm. and that's what happens. And so, you know, what the book teaches is really how to just begin that I, in fact, the, the opening quote of the book says, wherever you are is the entry point. And I love that. It's from Kabir. And what it does for me is it just helps me relax and say, oh, I can start right now. I, it's not too late. I haven't missed my chance. I can begin right now. And for me, that is such a hopeful message. You know, it's funny because when you think about the brain, it's not only that it's not hopeless, but in fact, outside of infancy and adolescence, parenting, the onset of parenting specifically gives your brain its most hope and vulnerability to grow. And that's new research as well. So for parents listening, you're primed right now for changes, positive changes. That's what our brains are are wanting to do. It's the best time to start new habits because it's the best time in your adult life, at least, to rewire your brain. Now, I know that that if you're not a parent, that feels like not that exciting to hear. <laughs> but um, and that's not what I'm saying at all, because if you read Shauna's book, you'll be sold um, in droves that any wherever you're starting is the entry point. Absolutely. But I do think it's pretty heartening that you think of a mom brain or a dad brain as having a deficit of some kind. And really, it's just that it's ripe for paying attention to what really matters and being open to positive change. Absolutely. And that is such a radical perspective is to actually view our brain as this kind of incredibly elegant, complex system that was designed to evolve with life. But in a way that is so attainable that it feels, I feel giddy over it. So can we take your favorite or one of your favorite or any golden nuggets that we can get right now? to take away from this podcast? Absolutely. And in fact, what will impact people who are listening more is for them to take a moment and reflect on 
what your golden nugget is. What is Mm. the golden nugget is something we refer to in the book. And it's really based on this research that shows that what we remember most is the peak and the end of an experience. And so it's really important at the end to reflect on what was my highlight? What was the one thing I want to take with me? Maybe it's what you practice grows stronger, or maybe that change is possible in any moment or that self-compassion is actually powerful. So take a moment and just reflect on what is your one gold nugget that you want to take with you. If you're not driving, let your eyes close and you can just really deepen that insight into your body, encoding it in your long-term memory. Stay with it for a full breath. And then as you're ready, you can let your eyes open. And I think for me, my, my one gold nugget is that this takes practice, that it's okay if I'm not perfectly kind to myself every single day. And that the moment I notice I'm being harsh with myself, that is the breakthrough moment. That's the moment to celebrate and say, oh, now I have choice. Mm. Now that I'm aware I can bring kindness instead of harshness. Right here, I can begin again. Shauna Shapiro, you are my gold nugget. Thank you for coming back. And I can't wait for more. I enjoyed it. And now for listener Q&A. Hello, I truly enjoy listening to your podcast while commuting to work in LA. We've recently moved neighborhoods and schools mid-year. We've been moving every two years between different states and countries for the entire life of my older daughter and consider her to be very adaptable. This time, she seems to be struggling to adjust to her new circumstances. Her stress levels have never been this high, and I see a level of worry that is a little bit disproportionate to what's causing her to worry. The new school teaching seems to be contradicting the old, and the feeling of being lost or unaware is making Julia feel anxious almost all of the time. Are there any tools that you can give to help her learn to cope with the stress of this new situation? Thanks in advance. Wow, that's a lot of moving. And, um, you know, sometimes it depends on your child's age. So I actually don't see here an age, but based on your description, it sounds like you might have an emerging adolescent or adolescent. And transitions are hard for everybody, but they're harder for some kids than others. And, you know, while you would think that moving kids a lot would help them be really adaptable, for many kids, having stability helps them be more adaptable. It really is often person dependent and temperament dependent. And here's the other factor. Around the age of 10 and on, you have an emerging adolescent and adolescent brain. And when that happens, your brain goes through a remodeling of sorts. Everything feels different. So how you adjust and adapt feels different. How you perceive stress feels different. And the way you care about things that maybe before wouldn't feel like a big deal, can feel like a really big deal. This isn't something that is personality-based so much. This is just like what's happening in her brain structure. So for example, all of a sudden, 10, 11, 12, 13, you have all these new worries about what other people think and how your peers perceive you and fitting in matters so much more. It can actually disappoint a lot of parents because it feels like, oh my God, my independent free-spirited kid who was really, you know, like didn't care so much about the stresses of other people and how they think of them causes them to, you know, become a person who 
deeply, deeply is worried and concerned that the outside world can read her thoughts and feelings and that she might not fit in. And that can cause a tremendous amount of stress on emerging and adolescent brains. So rather than think of them as disproportionate to what's causing her to worry, I would listen to her and let her have those worries and sort of unload on you, obviously respectfully, but have a place for her to just worry without being told that they're not that big of a deal so that she can come to that on her own as she walks through it with you. You can even think of yourself as a witness instead of a judge. So you're witnessing her go through this experience and you can repeat back to her what she's told you to make sure you understand. And you might even ask her what you know, what she plans to do, or if there's something that she's looking for from you, do you want my advice? Or do you want to just tell me what's going on and vent? And be a resource for her without it turning into the central story of your family where, you know, she comes home and it's just about her anxiety. Really just give her a safe space. You can even set a time, like we're going to spend 15 minutes every day kind of walking through those anxieties. And then we're going to put them away. We'll put them to the side and we'll get back to them tomorrow. This will help her get more comfortable with the normalizing these feelings that she's having. And, um, you know, I also recommend if she loves reading, which you also mentioned, there's a book on the teenage brain that is actually written for both parents and kids to read. And it's fascinating. So if you have a little bit of a reader or scientist on your hands, sometimes it really helps to feel more comfortable with what's going on in your life when you see that your brain's restructuring. There's like a whole thing, remodeling rather, and there's like a whole slew of things happening that make it so that your responses are different than you even recognize in yourself. And um, it also has some tools and that's Dan Siegel's book called Brainstorm. So give that a try. It's something also that can help you help her sort through some of these things and give you an understanding of what's going on so that some of her responses don't seem so um, maladaptive. And the consistency of her unconditionally loving family and certain things that make her feel more comfortable will help her adapt over time. And it may also be, as you said, that the school is just asking different things from her. And um, so you need to talk to her and listen more than anything to what those differences are and maybe help her think of ways that she can find adults who can help her navigate that in her school. Okay, next question says, Hi, Dr. Pressman. I just stumbled upon your podcast a few days ago, and I'm so glad that I have. Thank you very much. I'm really struggling with my four-year-old son. I recently moved him to a new preschool, and he's not adjusting well at all. I moved him from his previous school because I happened to listen to teachers yelling at the kids during bathroom break. I was so displeased with the fact that he'd not made any academic progress at the beginning of school. I've never received a complaint from the teachers regarding his behavior at the previous school. He's only able to attend his new preschool three times per week, and I've been called numerous times by the staff saying my son is hitting the teachers using foul language and even spitting at one teacher. This is not his usual behavior, and I'm wondering what's going on. When he has this type of behavior, the school calls me and asks me to pick him up. They don't seem to know what to do or how to redirect him. I'm wondering what I could do at this point. Thank you so much for listening. Okay. That is really hard. I'm sorry to hear that. It's hard to 
to say without more information what could be going on. I will say that a transition and a recent one at that to a new school can be really difficult for any kid. And acting out is one way to let people in your life know that you're not having an easy time, but you don't really have the language or the understanding about what's going on to articulate that you're having a difficult time. So one thing, I mean, it's great that if you heard teachers yelling at kids and it just felt like that wasn't the right environment, it's great that you found a new place. I think that academic progress is a little bit difficult to measure with preschoolers because they're really charged less with academic stuff in the traditional sense and more with learning the social skills to have the ability to have academic success. So their self-regulation, their ability to sort of control their bodies and their attention skills, all of the things that control their relationships with their friends and their reactions to them when they don't get what they want or when they have to take their turn or when they have to get a job done or to clean their things up. These all seem like very normal things, but they're really, really hard to learn. So preschool in many ways sets the tone for being able to have academic success, but you aren't necessarily going to see those academics in real time. But that is neither here nor there. And you weren't asking about that. Um, So I would say if this is new behavior, it's a real clue that he's obviously having a difficult time. I'm wondering, you said he's only able to attend three times a week. And I'm wondering if that's, um, is the situation that other kids are attending more days per week? So I want to think about that because sometimes when some kids are there more or a child isn't able to get a consistent handle on what to expect each day. They can act out a little bit more. And I wonder if you could ask the staff what it is that's provoking the hitting or the language or the spitting. So what interactions are they having? Because sometimes if it's happening in a way that is a response to the teachers not using positive discipline or coming at him with accusations, that's one thing. But if the teachers are doing their best to redirect him, to help him understand the boundaries of what his body can and cannot do in a classroom, and to help him figure out in a positive way what he can do when he's frustrated, it may also be that you want to look at what's going on at home and make sure that he has an opportunity to talk about his feelings and to address his difficulty, even if those feelings are angry or confused. Sometimes you have to give them, you know, ask them questions about where he's feeling it in his body when he wants to hit, what's going on inside of his tummy. Is it in his arms? Like, is it in his head? Where is he feeling it? And as you get answers, you'll be able to label what those feelings might be. Oh, I think what's going on is your body's getting so, so angry. And then your hands get really tight and then you just push, you know, those kinds of things and let him have those feelings at home so that you can help say, listen, you can have those feelings anytime you want, but we can't act on those feelings. So let's come up with some other things you can do when you're feeling that angry and then partner with your teachers about ways to catch him, keeping his hands to himself, not spitting, responding well to being redirected so that they have a way to help him positively catch him being quote unquote good and feeding his meter so that he starts to realize, oh, I am a good kid. Instead of what it sounds like is happening is it's a cycle of he acts out, he gets in trouble, he comes home. You might even be disappointed in him or yelling at him or yelling at the school 
um, or not saying anything at all. You might be responding perfectly. It's a little hard for me to tell, but since uh, you, you know you can't really control anything the school does or what your child does, the best you can do is try to think about how are you responding and what tools can you help him practice so that he can get to a place where he can stay at school a full day and how can you build his day to be as consistent and predictable and reliable as possible. Good luck and keep me posted. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. For more questions, please DM me on my Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please give me feedback and would love for you to subscribe, rate, and write a little review. Have a wonderful week.